Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. Let's begin by praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible grace and love. We thank you, Father, that in your righteousness, you knew you had to deal with sin. But in your love and grace, you found a way to have your own son be our substitute at the cross. We'll be forever grateful for that, Father. We thank you also that you raised him from the dead. And furthermore, that the salvation is by grace as well, through faith, not of works. Father, this morning we ask for the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. We ask, too, Father, that you would continue to watch over your children, uh, Christians in this country and in every country, especially those who are being persecuted. We pray for our fellow brothers and sisters in those countries, particularly the ones with whom we have a relationship, like in Nigeria and Pakistan and other places in Africa and around the world, actually, in Indonesia as well. Father, we ask this morning also that we would be able to concentrate and receive from your word the things that you've provided us, the challenges of it, the empowerment of it, the building up, and the, and then, and then the positioning of our hearts and our minds to continue to do your will as the word of God teaches us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Okay, once again this morning, I do want to remind everybody about prayer. We have an amazing gift from God to be able to do what we do in prayer individually, corporately. Powerful prayer has a huge impact. We'll never know the extent of it until we're with the Lord, but but we get hints of it when we pray and we, we realize that certain things have worked out in a way that um, couldn't have been imagined. Naturally speaking, we know that God's at work. We know he's always at work. But being fallible, we also like to know, get some reinforcement, and we get that. So please continue in your prayer walk. Please continue with uh, inter- interceding on behalf of the saints. All right. Let's now turn to uh, in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. We're going to start this morning in verse 14. John, chapter 10, verse 14. John 10, 14. I'll try to be done with this passage by 10:14. No, I'm just kidding. It's it's a slow day for me. I'm trying to get up, wake up. Title of today's message, of course, comes from this passage, and it's uh, I have Jesus speaking. I have authority to take my life up again. I have authority to take my life up again. John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? pick things up this morning in verse 17. We have seen in last week that Jesus has now declared that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And we saw also that these sheep included both Jews and Gentiles. Now, in verses 17 and 18, Jesus is concluding his teaching in this section about the good shepherd in the door. And what he does is he turns his attention back to his relationship with his father. He often talks about his relationship with his father in the Gospel of John. Um, earlier here in chapter 14, uh, we also we saw him also talking about the relationship between himself and his father. I mean, chapter 10. So he's going to go back to it this morning, and it's going to round out his teaching. He's going to bring it back to the source of his, his being the good shepherd, of his love, of his, of his choice to lay down his life, 
in his life, be, taking up his life again in resurrection. He's going to surround it all and say, this is all coming out of, building out of this unique relationship that I have with my father. Essentially, it's a relationship that's grounded in love and obedience. Love and obedience. By the way, this is the same kind of relationship that we have in marriage. If you, in Ephesians chapter 5, the husband is to love his wife sacrificially, and the wife is to obey her husband. It's not that much different in that, as far as that's concerned. Of course, it's totally different when it comes to the fact that this is God the Father and God the Son, and we're flesh, fleshly human beings, but the principle is the same. In any event, their love is a two-way love. Very simply, the father loves the son, and the son loves the father. So the love part is two-way. The father loves the son, and the son loves the father. But then springing out of that, that second way, the son loving the father, what happens is, is because of that, you see, Jesus loves the father, therefore he obeys the father's orders. So the obedience is one way, and yet even here there are two wills that are involved that line up. The father's orders are his will, and Jesus turning over his will to his father. Love and obedience. The father loves the son. The son loves the father. Because Jesus loves the father, he obeys the father's orders. In that obedience, by virtue of that, he abides in the love of the father. They're so interrelated. The father and the son, love and obedience, they come back around. And in his obedience, which we're going to see has always been there, even in the Godhead, but especially, of course, when the word became flesh, in that obedience, he abides in the love of the Father. As it were, he stays in that obedience. He's, he's in the love of the Father, and the Father's pleased with Jesus. Now, this morning, we're going to um, distinguish between the humanity and the deity of Christ. It's very important. Uh, throughout the Gospels, we, we need to do that so we understand things properly. I mean, for one thing, God can't die, right? So Jesus, when he dies on the cross, that's his humanity. Well, we're going to see something similar this morning. The Father and the Son have existed from all of eternity. But at a moment of time, the Word became flesh. God's Son became incarnate, is the word that's used. And his name is Jesus. When you see the name Jesus, it speaks almost always of the humanity of Christ. And we're going we're gonna to see how that plays in as well this morning. So because there, there's a relationship between the Father and the Son that has existed from all of eternity. But the, but the Word become flesh, that has not existed from all eternity. That, that existed, that union between the deity of Christ and his humanity at the moment Jesus was born. Okay, so that was a point in time. We think it was probably 4 B.C., but in Bethlehem, when Mary gave birth to her son, at that instant, now the word became flesh. And now you have this unique person of the universe who is both God and man. So it's vital in some times to be able to make that distinction so that we understand what's really happening and understand that there is great purpose behind, obviously, God's son taking on human flesh. And sometimes it becomes really magnified as to why that occurred and and, and what the humanity of Christ has done for us. And that's important because in these two verses that we start with this morning, in verses 17 and 18, it's the humanity of Christ that's in view, the humanity of Christ. In other words, if you look at verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me. Now, I get so far, that's been a relationship from all of eternity between the Father and the Son, but look at the second part. Because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. Again, God can't die, right? So when, he's, when Jesus says, I lay down my life, he's talking from his humanity. When he says, I take up my life again, he's talking about his humanity. Furthermore, in verse 18, when he says, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Again, He's talking about dying, and therefore it's in his humanity that he's speaking. In other words, that we all, in addition to thinking about the relationship between God and the Son, in the deed, in the Godhead, we call it, from all of eternity, we also need to understand the relationship between the humanity of Christ and God. The humanity of Christ and God. 
And when we see the name Jesus, that, that makes us look at that front and center. Now we're talking about the relationship between the humanity of Christ and God. And it has its own elements. Okay. Again, look at verse, verse 18. We'll start again. No one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority in my humanity to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. In verses 17 and 18, the humanity of Christ is in view. He speaks, when he speaks here in verses 17 and 18, he speaks as the incarnate Son of God, Son of God taking flesh, the Word made flesh, or in a word, Jesus. He speaks of the incarnate. I say that because it means Son of God in the flesh, incarnate, the God-man. The Word became flesh, became flesh, wasn't always. Jesus is the name of the humanity of Jesus of Christ, and that's who is in view here. Again, the Father loves, look at verse 17, love for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. There's that two-way love, the love of the Father for, for the Son, and here it's for Jesus, and also Jesus loves the Father and expresses that by being obedient to the Father and laying down his life. And by the way, the will of the Father is also that, the, that Jesus takes his life up again. The Gospel of John talks about this love very often. If you could turn down to John chapter 3, verse 35. John chapter 3, verse 35. There are certain truths, certain elements, certain realities that John brings up again and again in his Gospel. I know I've mentioned this many times, but I'm going to repeat it this morning. The Gospel of John can be seen as a symphony with different movements that come back and variations on it. This is one of them, the love of God, the Father, for the Son. Look at John chapter 3, verse 35. It's real simple, but notice the power of this. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, this morning, we realize that one of those things is the, is the life of the humanity of Christ and the authority to lay his life down and then the authority to take it up again. That's one of the all things that the Father has given to the Son. Turn, now, in addition to the, the, the Gospel of John talking about the love that the Father has for the Son, we also have passages, many of them, that talk about the Son always obeying the will of the Father. So they're going to turn forward now to John chapter 8, verse 28, for an example of this. John chapter 8, verse 28. The Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hand. The Son always obeys the will of the Father. John chapter 8, verse 28. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, by the way, that's the cross, on the cross, when you lift up the Son of Man, Notice it's Son of Man, humanity here. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And he's talking about who he is, his identity. I'm the Christ, the Son of God. I do nothing on my own. And notice this. I do nothing on my own initiative. Notice he's talking about his humanity. Of course, in his deity, he does things, okay, that are independent in that sense. Not independent, but um, in freedom, but here in his humanity, he does nothing on his own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. You see, God the Father can't teach God the Son because God the Son knows everything God the Father knows. But the humanity, we know, from, for example, from the book of Hebrews, that Jesus learned things. In Hebrews, it says he learned things from the things he suffered. It's a, it is a tremendous statement of his humanity. And, and gets at really the heart of the, the, the problem for humanity in terms of suffering. Not, you know, sin is the cause, but Jesus went through the same kind of suffering that every human being goes through. Only he always learned from it. Um, sometimes, very often, we don't, but he always did. But his humanity, he says, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things. Every word that came out of his mouth were, were words that the Father taught him, gave him to speak. And he who sent me, that's the Father, of course, is with me. 
He has not left me alone. Notice this, though, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And notice that word always. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Pleasing to him is another expression for the will of God. And notice, too, that that the obedience of Christ is tied into that love of the Father expressed in terms of his being pleasing. It's reminding us of when the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized by John the Baptist and he came out of the water and he had the dove representing the Holy Spirit. And then that that voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, because all the things he's going to say are things that I have taught him. So, again, the principle, the father's love for the son has always been joined to the son's obedience to the father. Joined. I'm, I'm not saying that one causes the other, but rather they've always been joined together in a voluntary relationship of love and obedience. It's always been that way. Look at John chapter 14, verse 30. John chapter 14, verse 30. Fair warning, we're going to go to a, a lot of scriptures this morning, many of them in the Gospel of John, but in other places as well. It's such a rich section of the word of God. We're only going to look at five verses this morning, but they're rich, especially the first two, 17 and 18. We learn so much from just those two verses when we go to other places of the scriptures that talk about the same subject. Look at John chapter 14, verses 30 to 31. Here, Jesus is in the upper room. It's the night before he's going to suffer and die on the cross. And here, He is teaching the apostles the things that they're going to need to understand, both wonderful things and and sad things, as it were, about what's going to happen when he leaves. Okay, so notice here, verse 30, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. They're complete opposites. But so that the world may know that I notice, I love the Father. The love for the Father of the Father for the Son. What's it always been joined to? The obedience of the Son to the Father. So let's see it. Verse 31. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. So that the world, notice the world, the world may know, right? God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son. That the world may know that I love the father. I do exactly as the father commanded me. Boy, I really wish uh, children could uh, say the same thing, right? I do exactly as my parents command me all the time. I am always pleasing to them. Of course, we know that's impossible. Um, But it's a nice goal to shoot for. So again, love of the father, obedience of the son. We see it here also in John 14, 30 to 31. So you have this love between the father and the son. You have this obedience of the son to the father. Then you have that remarkable moment when God, the son, takes on flesh, becomes the God man, God in the flesh. And then that love continues, that obedience continues. But now in a new, as it were, setting, like I put it that way, in a new really person, the union between the humanity and deity of Christ, which, by the way, is going to exist going forward forever. I mean, it's a remarkable, humbling thing to think that God in his son had to change his nature in order to save us. I mean, that alone was a tremendous, tremendous sacrifice. And it's enduring. It'll always be that way. God came down and he humbled himself as a man. Now, he stayed God, but he took on human flesh. He was human in every way except for sin. So that love of the father, the love of the son for the father, that nature of obedience actually brings its ultimate expression in that moment when Jesus lays down his life. That love between the father and the son now overflows through Jesus to to, the, to every man, to the world, and most especially those who would believe in his son, the sheep of the, of the, of the good shepherd. So that love overflows in Jesus now. Notice I've switched to Jesus from the Son. That's intentional because now we're talking about the humanity of Jesus Christ. The love overflows in Jesus' greatest act of obedience to the Father. 
And of course, we're talking about what he did at the cross. His greatest act of obedience was when he went to the cross and he died for our sins. He bore the shame of the cross. It was enough of a humbling thing for him to be willing to become a human being. But beyond that, he, he bore the, the shame of the cross. He bore the burden of all our sins and even the curse of death he bore for us. That was the moment of ultimate obedience. The humanity of Jesus Christ, greatest act of obedience, greatest expression of the love between the Father and the Son, which poured over into our, into our relationship with the Son, Jesus and the Father. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Hebrews 12.2. In Hebrews 12, we're, we're encouraged, we're commanded really, to run the race that we have been given to run, like an athlete would. And as we do, here's what we are to do. Here's what our focus has to be in order to run and win that race. Verse 2, looking unto God the Son. Is that what it says? I'll give you a moment to get there, wake up, whatever you got to do. Looking unto Jesus. Right. Well, that's who? That's the humanity. See how it's, it's no accident. We see when it, when it talks about the, the death on the cross, it's talking about Jesus. Okay. The humanity of, of God, God, man. Looking unto Jesus, the author of... Oh, I'm in the King James Version. No wonder you guys are giving me blank looks. Sorry about that. What does it say in the New American Standard? Fixing our eyes. Fixing our eyes, right. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our Oh, yeah, that's the fifth word. Sorry, guys. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Ultimate obedience in bearing our sins, enduring the shame of the cross, and now he has risen from the dead and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This love between the Father and the Son reaches its ultimate expression in the greatest act of obedience that Jesus ever performed for his Father when he was willing to bear the shame of the cross and the burden of our sins, and the very curse of death for us. Well, the story doesn't end there, of course. After Jesus, they, as Jesus is laying down his life, he has another goal, another end in mind. Notice it says in Hebrews chapter 12, too, for the joy that was set before him. So there was, a, there was joy that, that, that he was looking to. In the same way that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, he was fixing his mental eyes, as it were, on something that was coming beyond the death, coming beyond the grave. And of course, it's his resurrection from the dead. By the way, resurrection from the dead is critical. It's critical. I mentioned this so many times, but you have, have to tell people that Jesus rose from the dead. That's part of the gospel. It is the manner in which God the Father indicates that those who believe in Christ are justified forever. You look at Jesus Christ risen from the dead, and it's and it's it's pointing out that death couldn't hold him, and that he has the power of life as well as death, and that whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life, right? That resurrection life that came out of the grave in the in the glorified Jesus, okay, and also is declared righteous by God. All of that, of course, is joy. For Jesus. Why? Because that's why he did it. He did it so that he could rescue many brothers and sisters from certain death in the lake of fire. Of course, he also did it to glorify his own father and to to vindicate him, the father, in his righteousness that had that had been questioned, as it were, because he hadn't acted yet in human history now questioned because he hadn't acted yet to deal with the sins of mankind. So Jesus lays down his life with something in mind, his resurrection from the dead. Okay, let's go back now to John, our passage this morning, John chapter 10, verse 17. 
There's no greater love than for someone to lay down his life. That's not the passage. I'm saying this as you turn it. Than to lay down his life for his friends. For this reason, the Father loves me. John 10, 17. For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Now, at first glance, when you look at this passage, it sounds like the father is holding back his love until Jesus lays down his life. Well, of course, that's not true. And so we need to understand what is really being said here. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Well, here we have the same elements. We have the father's love. We have the obedience of the son in laying down his life and in taking it up again. And just remember that the love and obedience are just inextricably linked, just like in, a, in the design of God for marriage, where the, 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 actually the husband is to take the initiative in loving freely, sacrificially. And that by itself engenders as op- opens up the possibility in a sense for the woman, to, the wife to step in there and obey the, fa- the, the husband, because it is the love of the, of the husband that, as it were, makes it attractive, you know, uh, attracts the obedience of the wife. And in this, and it, so that relationship is there. Of course, it's unique when it comes to the father and the son. So, in it, so when we talk about the father's love for Jesus, though, Jesus, who is that? God in the flesh, the incarnate son, you see. See, that, that, that love plays itself out in the life of Jesus Christ. And what happens, the love is always there, but as it were, it's intensified, particularly in terms of the human experience of Jesus. So when Jesus sacrifices himself on the cross, that love for the father's love for him is intensified. It's always there, but it's intensified when he sacrifices himself. I I am well pleased with my son. Okay, let's go to the same passage Next verse, John chapter 10, verse 18. Very important statement here. No one has taken my life away from me. I mean, if you think about the story of the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, it appeared that everybody took everything away from him. And first he was arrested and his freedom was taken away. Then he was beaten and stripped and his dignity was taken away. Then he went to the cross and he died. His very life, it appeared, from the actions of the high priests, chief priests and Pharisees and the actions of the Roman soldiers, the actions of the Gentile leader, Pilate, the actions of all the people that surrounded the cross, the Roman soldiers nailing him to the cross, all of that appeared as if there were lots of people taking Jesus' life away from him. And so when you look at this statement, it has to hopefully trigger something. Wait a minute. There's a lot more here than meets the eye when it comes to the death of Jesus. That, in fact, everything that happened was according to God's will. This was much more than a human being becoming a martyr. There have been a lot of human beings that have become martyrs for God, and it's a wonderful thing. But what happened on the cross is way beyond that. It's it's this unique sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It is the thing that, again, vindicated the very righteousness of God. God's not going to leave that to chance or to the the wills of evil people and say, well, whatever they're going to do to my son, they're going to do. No, this was all choreographed, designed. And, 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 and the, God the Father ha, had the ability to put everybody in place to do exactly what his will was, which was, of course, to allow the, the son to be obedient, to, to give his will over to the father. And so all of that, none of that would have happened except for that love relationship that turned into obedience from the son to the father. No one has taken it away from me. But I lay my life down on my own initiative. Certainly didn't look that way. However, someone who's paying careful attention to what what occurred, particularly before the soldiers came into the garden, 
and pick up on something marvelous that 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 was what really kicked it all in. That none of this would have happened if it wasn't for Jesus' choice to fulfill the will of his father, to, to walk in all that the father had ordained for him or what he calls the cup, the bitter cup of his death on the cross. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. He, now, again, he's talking about in, in verses 17 and 18. Is he talking about his deity or is he talking about his humanity? Hello, open question. Verses 17 and 18. Is he talking about his deity or his humanity? We've gone over this. Good. His humanity. All right. So so it's in his humanity that he says, I have authority to lay down my life. It's in his humanity where he says, I have authority to take it up again. Now, this is an incredible statement for a man to make. In fact, it's so incredible that there's going to be a huge reaction. The people he's talking to, particularly the Pharisees, they're going to be shocked by this statement. And it is shocking in and of itself when you think about a man who is hated, who is taken prisoner, and he's declaring, I have the authority to lay down my life and I have the authority to take it up again. In other words, he is telling them that he has the authority to be to rise from the dead. Now, where does a human being get that authority? The authority really over life and death. There's only one place. And that's God, right? Only God can, can give the authority. Only God has the authority over life and death. And that's why he says this commandment, which, by the way, was embedded in the marching orders, as it were, that Jesus, that the father gave to Jesus. Here's what you're going to do. And here's the authority I've given you to do it. OK, this commandment I received from my father. Jesus had the complete freedom to lay down his life. Freedom. And I want you to stop for a moment. And I want you to think and think about this as in his humanity, he had the freedom to lay down his life. And, 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 he, and he got that from God himself. Now, freedom means freedom. Freedom means he could have said, I'm not going to lay down my life. That's what freedom means. If he's free to do it, he's free not to do it. And that's a, that's a tremendous burden if you think about it. I mean, who among us, knowing we had the freedom to lay down our life, would do it? It, it would take a remarkable reason, right? No, no, no greater love than to do that, right? Especially when you have the total freedom to do it or not. I mean, when human beings, um, when Christians, listen to what Jesus says, no one has greater love than to lay down his life for his friends, I don't know about you, but for me, that's a tremendous struggle to do that. I'm not even talking about physical death because neither was Jesus when he talked to his apostles. He was talking about the day in and day out sacrificial life, considering the needs of others, being willing to give sacrificially what you have that's needed by a brother or a sister. That's really difficult. I think we can all agree that that's that's not easy. All right. But we don't always have the complete freedom either. I mean, there are times when when we can't do it. We don't have the ability to do it. There are times when we should do it and we don't. Okay. But at that point in time, there are there there's things that constrict our will. God the Father does this all the time. We have much less freedom in a sense um, to to do whatever we want than we think. All right. Because what happens is God has a will. He has things He wants to accomplish. He, he began a good work in you. He's going to complete it. And that, by the way, includes he's going to do things in our lives to, as it were, steer our will in the right direction. Not true of Jesus. He had complete freedom. And he had the freedom to lay down his life, as we're going to see. He also had the freedom to take it up again. You know, I think at least I think that's fair of the father. If he's going to if he's going to say, Jesus, I want you to die. I give you the freedom to die. Right. It, it, it makes things a lot better if he also gives him the freedom to take his life up again. And he did. The father gave him complete freedom. What that means is that Jesus had a choice 
But I want you to see, turn to John chapter 5, verse 26. I want you to see where, in a sense, or Jesus talking about that gift of freedom that the Father gave him. Look at John chapter 5, verse 26. It's it's something to observe how, as the Gospel of John moves along, it appears that Jesus is just in one episode to the next. Okay, here in chapter 5, there was a man that couldn't walk, that he healed. He did it on the Sabbath. It stirred up the wrath of the legalistic Pharisees. But he says this in his teaching in chapter 5. Now, we're in chapter 10. Okay, and so it gets layered. Okay, here... It's not clear necessarily what he's talking about, necessarily. Verse 526. For just as the Father has life in himself, the Father is life, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Okay, so even in the Godhead, there was this transfer, if you will, of of life from the Father to the Son. And then the Son is also life in himself. But in the humanity of Christ, see, he was given the choice. Jesus freely, Jesus, the word made flesh, the incarnate son of God, born of the flesh, born of a woman. Jesus freely chose in his humanity to go to the cross. I want you to see the exact moment that, well, at least that, that, that Jesus spoke about this, this choice, this freedom Father gave him a choice that Jesus said, yes, I will do it. Please turn to Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. This is just a few more minutes after Jesus completes his private teaching of his apostles of what's to come. That he's going to die, then there'll be joy three days later, then they will enter into a world that hates them, and Jesus will tell them that he's overcome that world. And that and then we know that the spirit descends upon believers, and that's how the church begins. Okay, so he's preparing in John thirteen through seventeen, preparing his apostles for that. Then he goes out And then he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he asks his apostles to stay with him, stay awake, and they fall asleep, and he's there alone in the garden. In verse 39, he went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face. I want you to picture this. He fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. See, to the very moment that he makes this decision we can see that it's that it's gut-wrenching in his humanity he realizes that he always pleases the father but here he's asking father if there's any other way that your will can be accomplished rather than the cup that cup is a cup of suffering all the suffering he's going to go through in the next 16 hours now He's saying, if there's any way, Father, please let this pass. If there's, if there's, if there's a, like an expression of the humanity of Christ, and there are, of course, many of them, this to me is the most gripping. That in his humanity, he really, really understood pain and suffering and, and if possible, wanted to avoid it. Even G, now in his humanity, okay? But he also knew that that couldn't be. And notice what comes next. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Basically, he is sort of giving permission, not to the Father, but saying, okay, I've made the decision. I'm going to lay my my life down in obedience to my Father. Yet not as I will, but as, as you will. And as it were, that's the spark that was lit, that came into the conflagration, the great fire of anger and evil and hatred that hit him. And and it resulted in all of those evil things happening to him. It would not have happened except for what he says in the garden in verse 39. Not as I will, but as you will. You know, the chief priests, the Pharisees, 
his enemies, they would not have been able to put him to death if Jesus had decided not to die. They wouldn't have been able to do it, even to the very moment. Now, think about this moment we're at. We're at this moment. Judas is already gone to the chief priest. He's already been bribed. He's already on the way with over 100 Roman soldiers and a crowd of people that wanted the blood. They wanted the death of Jesus. They're on their way. And yet at that moment, if Jesus had said, I'm calling it off, Dad, right? they, they would not have been able to put him to death. I want you to think about that. He made the decision and all of the power of the Roman Empire, all of the hatred of the chief priests, all of the plans and schemes they were making to make sure they pulled it off this time, setting up illegal trials. All of that would have been would have been vaporized if Jesus said, nope, not doing it. Please turn to Matthew chapter 26. Well, you're already there. Just go up a few verses to verse 53. Because while there were over 100 Roman soldiers on the way, he had many more on his side. He had legions of angels standing at the ready to rescue him if he if he gave the signal, I'm not going through with this. And he made that clear when when Peter was in the garden, when the soldiers were there, and Peter being the bravado boasting guy that he sometimes was, who had already said to him, I will die for you even though very soon he's going to deny he even knew him. At this point, he's taken his sword out. I mean, how ridiculous in a way. You know, poor Peter the fisherman with his sword is going to fight over 100 Roman soldiers. I admire his courage, but not his brains. But, of course, once again, he missed the fact. Remember, there was one time, only a few times, when Jesus called somebody Satan. But one of them was when Peter was saying, I'm going to do everything I can to stop you from being killed. All right. Because I call him Satan because that Satan is the one who wants to stop God's plans in their tracks. So Peter draws his sword and he's going to, as a matter of fact, he cuts off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. And Jesus made something clear to him at that moment. Look at verse 53. Or do you think, Peter, that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal? More than 12 legions of angels. God the Father was also ready in the, in the event that his son called it off. To have, he had legions of angels ready to descend into the garden and, and annihilate, wipe out all the enemies, all the soldiers, all of that in an instant. Jesus himself had great power, you know, when, they, when it, 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 the God, I think it's the Gospel of John. When these guys come and they say, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus. And he says, I am. And, they, and all over 100 soldiers went, whoosh. They, they fell on the, on the ground. So he had tremendous power. He could have done whatever he wanted. Or do you not think, or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Then he goes on and explains why that's not going to happen. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? Jesus fulfills scripture. It was the word of his father. He always did the things that were pleasing to his father. This was the ultimate test. I mean, imagine that. Imagine if you're a missionary in in a country like, let's say, in Africa somewhere, or China or North Korea. And you, uh, you are, you're now being arrested by the government. They're going to put you on trial and put you to death. North Korea is probably the best place to think about that. And yet you know that God has told you that he has thousands of angels at your disposal. I don't know about you, but I'd be severely tempted to say, now, go get them. But Jesus says, wait a minute, I can do that. But if I do that, the scriptures won't be fulfilled. That say it must happen this way. After Jesus rose from the dead, he gathered together groups of his disciples and went through the entire Old Testament and explained all the places in the Old Testament that said he had to suffer and then be raised from the dead. It was fulfillment of scripture. It's why he took on human flesh. He certainly wasn't going to stop at this point. So as a result of that, all the things that his enemies did, they didn't realize it, but all they were doing was executing the plan the Father had ordained. Everything they did 
was only because the father had ordained it, designed it, laid it out that way. They thought they were acting in their own self-interest, and they maybe they were. They, they, they certainly, for example, the chief priest said, isn't it better for one man to die than for the whole nation to be destroyed? You see, and how prophetic were those words? He didn't realize what he was saying, but he was playing, as it were, right into the hands of the father. His enemies merely executed the plan that Jesus' father had ordained. I want you to see a couple of passages that prove it. Please go to John chapter 19, verse 11, 10. John chapter 19, verse 10. Now, the, the night has turned into day. They've already put Jesus on trial five times. All of those were illegal. There's going to be one trial that was legal. And it would be the one that the one who had legal authority, the Roman Empire, representative, Pilate, he and he alone had the authority to put Jesus on trial. So it's 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 probably about 11 o'clock in the morning. Jesus has been beaten. He's been up for 24 hours or more. And then look at what happens in verse 10. So Pilate said to Jesus, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? In a human, at the human level, he did. He did. He had the authority given to him by the Roman emperor to release prisoners or to crucify them. But it's very interesting that he uses those words, authority. Authority. You see, what he didn't realize was that the one that was standing before him had the authority. And not from the Roman emperor, but from God himself. Jesus had the authority not to die, to be released and the authority to go to the cross and die. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. But this reason he who delivered me to you as the greatest sin. What is this saying? It's saying that Pilate, as evil as he was, or actually as cowardly as he was, was acting according to the will of God. He's saying the reason that Jesus is saying the reason that you're going to be able to to, to put me on the cross is because my father gave you that authority. That was according to the will of God. And he's saying the the one who delivered me to you, that's Judas, is guilty of the greater sin. Okay, because he had no authority in any way, shape or form to do what he did. Now, you could argue it's still according to the plan of God. Yes, it was. But he was not he was not in the authority. He he had violated his authority. He He had. going against the authority in order to do it. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 27. After Jesus is risen from the dead, and the the apostles, Peter here, going out and they're preaching to the Jewish people, teaching them about Jesus. I want you to notice, once again, when you get there, Acts chapter 4, verse 27. The second major teaching that Peter gives, first one being in chapter 2. Pentecost, when he's preaching to the Jews from all parts of the world. But here, notice what he says, Acts 4, 27. For truly in this city, he's still in Jerusalem now, Peter. Truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. Notice humanity of Christ. Gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. This is a prayer that Peter is praying to the Lord, to God. And he's saying, truly, here in in this city of Jerusalem, all these people had gathered together to put Jesus to death. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the Romans, the peoples of Israel, all of them wanted him dead. But what, what, what then Peter goes on to do whatever your hand and your purpose, Father, predestined to occur. They were all acting and playing and carrying out, as it were, the script that God the Father had already written. Okay, back in John chapter 10, verse 18. He's going to now add something. 
chapter 10, 18. You've seen that he had authority to lay down his life. He has another authority. No one has taken it away from me, his life. But I lay my life down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay my life down. I have the authority to take my life up again. This commandment I received from my father. The father, in addition to giving Jesus the authority to lay down his own life freely, also gave him the authority to take his life up again. In other words, he preordained both the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And, 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 and early, early, early in the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about this in a, in a cryptic way so that those who could understand did and most had no idea what he was saying. Look at John chapter 2, verse 19. John chapter 2, verse 19. Most of the time when I read a book, I read the end first. I do. It's not a bad thing to do. Especially the Gospel of John. Because what happens is, is that early on in the Gospel of John, Jesus is saying, he's putting these seeds out there. And he's saying, nobody knows what he's talking about. It's only after you get to the point where you see that Jesus was talking about his death and his resurrection, that it all becomes clear. And this is a perfect example of that. Look at John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered them, and he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's standing outside the physical temple that Herod had, had reconstructed. But he's not talking about that. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's talking about the temple of his body, and he's saying that you, you destroy this, and in three days I will raise it up. Notice he says, I will raise it up. I have the authority to lay down my life, and I have the authority to take it up again. But you might say to yourself, Boy, you know, I, I think there's a lot of other scriptures, aren't there, that say it wasn't Jesus that did it. It was God that did it. And it's true. The New Testament also teaches that God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. I, I, I constructed this. You may not think so. You might say, well, that's obvious. But I constructed it. I chose my words carefully here. God raised Jesus from the dead. Okay. The humanity of Christ, God. Now, notice I said God. I didn't indicate whether it's God the Father or God the Son, right, or God the Holy Spirit. I said God. And it's very interesting that that's what we find when we see, um, when we think of it, the Father raising from the dead. Invariably, it just says God. And I came to an understanding about that that I hadn't come to in the past. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 32. Acts chapter 2, verse 32. Acts chapter 2, verse 32. New Testament also teaches that God raised Jesus from the dead. Acts 2, 32. This Jesus, God, raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Who who raised Jesus from the dead here? God. God and Jesus. Deity and humanity. Go to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Marvelous scripture. Sometimes, you know, when I'm doing my study and and I come across a scripture and I say, this has it all. This is like almost like it came right out of the Gospel of John. One of those things. I do get certain pleasures and rewards when I study. This is one of them. Let me just say, whoa, look at look at everything that's here. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Hebrews 13, 20. Now, the God of peace, who brought up from the dead, resurrection, the great, notice this, shepherd of the sheep, right? I am the good shepherd. My sheep, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, and the God of peace brought back from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. And who is the shepherd of the sheep? Jesus, humanity, Jesus, our Lord, God raised from the dead, Jesus, the humanity of Christ. In other words, God raised Jesus from the dead. We just saw that in Acts 2, 32. 
Hebrews 13, 20. There are a slew of other passages that say the same thing. It's always God. God raised Jesus, humanity, from the dead. And back in our passage in John 10, 18, and Jesus took up his own life again. Those two things, as it were, both happened. Okay, God raises him from the dead. Jesus, humanity, takes up his own life again. Now, I'm not saying that, that, that it's a two-step process, but you could almost think about it that way. Whereas God raises him from the dead, and then Jesus says, I'm taking my life back, right? I'm, I'm taking up my own life again. After, but, but here's something else that we should layer into this. You know, we're going to see, I don't have you go there, but at the end, well, in verse 30 of chapter 2, actually, we're just there, right? Let's go. Well, we're not there. Let's go anyway. John chapter 10, verse 30. Simple, simple words, incredible power. So God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus, humanity, took up his own life again. But there's something else that we need to layer into this. And we see it in John chapter 10, verse 30. Simple, simple statement, but really profound. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now here, what he's saying is, is that in his humanity, they're of one will, but also in his deity, they're one person, or three, two persons in one essence. So you could also say, and, and, and correctly, that God the Father and God the Son raised Jesus from the dead. This is really profound. You might say, well, that's kind of obvious. Well, sure. But notice we saw those scriptures that said God raised Jesus from the dead. Well, God the Father and God the Son are one and the same. And so God the Father and God, God's Son in his deity, raised Jesus, his humanity, from the dead. Pretty profound to think about. That all that's about. We don't, of course, we don't understand the inner workings of that or how it all played together. But this is this is exactly true. Jesus received his authority to take up his life again, and he received it from the commandment of the Father, which expressed his Father's will. And I want you to think about it this way. Jesus was given that authority, and then he turned around and he handed that authority to the Father to execute the Father's will. Okay, this is what I'm talking about, about the interrelationship. Things come back. Father says, I give you authority to lay down your life and to take it up again. Jesus will say, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then that, he's freely giving that authority back into the hands of his father and saying, Father, I want you to execute your will. And I've given, freely given that to you. John chapter 10, as we close this morning. John chapter 10, verse 19. As Jesus no sooner spoke in those words, I have the authority to lay it down, the authority to take it up again. My father gave me this authority that a great division occurs. Notice who it's between now or among. A division occurred again among the Jews this time. What does that mean? They were split. The leaders were split. They didn't all agree anymore because of these words, the words of Jesus that he's just spoken. Many of them were saying, notice many, that means most, the majority, were saying he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? That's one group in the split. And then there's the other minority. Notice what they're saying. Others were saying these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. <laughs> a demon cannot Open the eyes of the blind. Can he? Once again, here the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus causes a division. But this time, even some among the hostile Pharisees, because as a group they were, recognized something remarkable, both about the words and the works of Jesus. The words, look at verse 21. These are not the sayings, the words of one demon possessed, and then the works. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind. You see, they saw something remarkable. They didn't quite put it together. They weren't willing to take that final step. Most of them were afraid to do that because they'd be kicked out of the synagogue. 
and, 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 and shamed. But they recognize something remarkable about the words and the works of Jesus Christ. That's the minority, though. Ma- the majority was threatened once again. This time, he, he claimed to have authority over life and death. Now, you know, people say Jesus never said he was God. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody else who has the authority over life and death besides God, right? Especially death, okay? They knew that. They picked up on that. They were mortified, as it were. They didn't, they, and, and here's the thing. They could not refute it. They couldn't. And so what did they do? In current terms, they tried to cancel him, right? They had their own cancel culture. Ah, he has a demon. Easy way to get out of it, right? Oh, okay, he has a demon. You know, we have certain uh, <laughs> trick words these days to sort of say, he's terrible, he's awful, don't pay any attention to him. You can fill in the blank. You guys know you're in the culture that I'm in. They couldn't refute him, so they tried to cancel him. He's crazy. He's demon-possessed. Because they had tried that earlier. You know, earlier on, they were convulsed also. By <laughs> this time, he was accusing them of being children of the devil. Remember that? Go back to John chapter 8, verse 47. He accused them, rightly, of being children of the devil. That didn't go over well. I would imagine most people would be kind of offended if you called them children of the devil. But I don't do that. Jesus does. Look at John chapter 8, verse 47. This is what he said. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. Talking about the religious leaders, you are not of God. Then the Jews answered, offended, shocked, and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are Samaritan and have a demon? See, those are two trigger words. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Demons are the opposite of God. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. So back in John chapter 10, verse 19, 20, and 21. Now we have the minority. In verse 21, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? This time, the minority amazingly comes to Jesus' defense. When they did, they pointed to, again, his words and his works. Unfortunately, they didn't put it together. They're saying these are amazing words, these are astounding works, but they stopped. They never took it to the next step, which was, he's the Messiah, you see? They only realized that it was an outrage for anybody to accuse this man of being having a demon. Why? Because of his words, what he said. The words he spoke were gracious words. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me. I'm laying down my life. And they were of authority. I have authority to lay down my life and pick it up again. And they, they were clear, clarity, great presence of mind, not confused, not muddled. And they're saying... These words could not possibly have been uttered by an insane or a demon-possessed man. And that's true. Couldn't possibly have been spoken if he was insane or demon-possessed. And his miracles were irrefutable. I mean, they had already tried to refute the, the claim that Jesus had healed the eyes of a man born blind. They couldn't refute it. They got really angry and threw that guy out. They couldn't refute any of this. But here's something else about the charge. They said he he had a demon, and yet he opened the eyes of a blind. You want to know something? A demon couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Only God can do it, open the eyes of a blind. You want to check that out? We don't have time this morning. You can write it down. Exodus 4.11. Only God can open the eyes of the blind. A demon couldn't do it. But here's something else to think about. A demon wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't open the eyes of a blind. He closed the eyes of somebody you could see. Absolutely. Why? Because a demon didn't have any compassion. The only thing they did was just like their their leader, Satan, did. They could only destroy and deceive. If you take a look in the word of God about those who were demon-possessed, they were the opposite of healed. Right? They, They were out of their mind. 
they were thrashing around and trying to beat themselves up and sent. They don't they don't have compassion at all on the human race. They try to destroy the human race because they have the same motives as their father, as their leader. All right. I think we'll have to stop there. For the first time in a long time, I didn't get through all my notes, but that's okay. I kept you long enough. I mean, basically, I mean, there are two more points. The demons acted according to their leader. You can check out that in John 8, 44. And the, the amazing thing is the demons knew. The demons knew who Jesus really was. And, of course, he was the son of God and the Christ. And if you want to read that, it's in Luke 40, Luke 4, verses 40 to 41. So I did finish my notes, kind of. All right, let's close. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the clarity that you give us in your word about your son. We thank you that the, the amazing love that you and he have shared from all of eternity poured out into our lives through your grace and through Jesus himself, who was full of grace and truth. We ask now, Father, that you, you, you help us to, to use the truths that you've placed in our hearts today and to be able to use them to build up ourselves and other people and to give them the truth about how great Jesus really is and that, we, that he has really conquered and overcome the world in every respect in terms of, of hatred of, 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 of you, in terms of legalism, in terms of demonic things. All of that is subject to the power and the word of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. You know what I always say at this time, right? What? We gather together again Thursday at 630. Right. All right. Have a great day.